Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Let's get started with the first question of the week. So if you haven't already, definitely grab a calculator, paper, especially for these math questions so you can take some notes. So the first question is, your patient is receiving 600 milliliters of 20% dextrose in their TPN. What is the GIR if they are 89 pounds? I mean, sorry, kilograms. So with this one, we want to kind of pull out all the information we have. So it's telling us that we have a 600 milliliters that is 20% dextrose solution. So we need to figure out how much dextrose is in there. So we're going to take 600 and then times 0.2 for 20%. And we're going to find out that of that 600 milliliters, 120 milliliters is going to be dextrose. And that's kind of like a one-to-one -one ratio. So if we have 120 milliliters, that's going to be 120 grams. Perfect. Okay, the next piece of information I need to find for my GIR equation is the weight, which they gave us. We said that was 89 kilos. And then I'm also going to divide it by the minutes in the day, which is 1440. So when I set up my equation, I'm going to have my milligrams of dextrose. Remember, it's milligrams, it's not grams. So you can either take your grams of dextrose and do 120 times 1,000, or you can also, I like to kind of move my decimal place three zeros, whatever kind of works for you. So that'll end up being 120,000 milligrams over our weight in kilograms, which is 89 kilos, over 1440, which is minutes in the day. Remember, our unit is going to be milligrams per kilograms per minutes in the day. So if we do that in our calculators, because we always want to double check, that is going to be a GIR of 0.94 if we round. And when we're thinking about GIR, we want to think about why would I calculate this for my patients? So my GIR, what I'm looking at is to make sure it's less than five. So we're preventing hyperglycemia just from the TPN. Because remember, everyone can handle a different amount of dextrose. So I can handle less than a 200 pound man. So what we're doing with this safety check in our TPN is we're really saying, okay, is this amount alone just going to cause hyperglycemia? No, right? Can you still have hyperglycemia with this amount? Absolutely. But we're saying, you know, that the infusion rate should not knowingly cause our hyperglycemia. So that's a great one to go over. So again, if you didn't get the equation, it's milligrams of dextrose over weight in kilograms divided by 1440 minutes, right? So 60 times 24. Okay, next up we have another math equation. So it says a food service department has to prepare a special luncheon for 25 people in addition to the regular lunch service. 
The hospital's regular lunch service requires 125 portions of vegetable lasagna that day. The standardized vegetable lasagna recipe yields 125 portions and requires 21 pounds of ricotta cheese. With the regular lunch service and the luncheon, 150 portions are needed. How much ricotta cheese is needed to meet production? So this type of question is really, really great to do a proportion on. I like to do proportions on any of these questions where they're telling me, okay, like this much is needed for this. So if I do 21 pounds over 125, and then I do equals X, right? I don't know how many pounds I'm gonna need over 150. So I have 21 pounds of ricotta cheese for 125 people equals unknown amount of ricotta cheese for 150 people. And what I can do there is then cross multiply that. And that's gonna help to tell me that I need 25.2 pounds of ricotta cheese 450. Now this one's open-ended because you guys know I love to do open-ended questions, but remember on the exam, the answer would probably be 26 pounds, right? Because if I got 25, that wouldn't be enough. I would round up to 26. Of course, if they had 25.2, that would be the answer. But remember in food service, we're typically rounding up because, right, we don't want to be short. Okay, next up we have a question, another question from a student. So she says, hi, Dana and Artie to bees. Elemental EN for pancreatitis. Should that be the best option for the exam? Inman says, yes. I've heard a lot of contradictions recently, so I just want to confirm that this is the best option versus what you would do in, quote, real life. I've also seen a question about pre-chemo treatment for esophageal cancer. I believe the options were NNG, PEG2, PEG. Oh, I know that during treatment you aim for small intestines, but this is before treatment. I don't know the answer. Thank you. So this one's a great question and a great reminder that you guys can always post to the page too. So let's break this down into two parts. Let's first talk about pancreatitis. So she's absolutely right. On the exam, when we're thinking, what is the best type of tube feed for pancreatitis? First of all, is the type of tube. We want to be doing that post-pyloric access, right? So this would be like a nasal jejunal tube so that we can kind of rest the pancreas. I like to think kind of sneaking, sneaking past the pancreas. And then we would typically want to be doing elemental formula in these patients because, again, we're kind of thinking like path of least resistance. So for the exam, yes, the best answer would be a nasal um, jejunal tube with elemental. Now, to kind of pause what we would do on the exam in real life, real life I've never done this. Most of the time, you can feed them gastrically. A lot of the time, we're giving them standard formula too. And this is a great point where there's a difference between what do we do in real life and what does the exam want. Um, this is often a trouble area for my students who are already working as dietitians. You know, this even happened to me when I was taking the CNSC exam, and I'm like, I write TPN orders every day, but we do that for my hospital, and I do this for the exam. So the pancreatitis and enteral nutrition is definitely a key point where you need to go, okay, for the exam, it's post-pyloric tube feeding. You know, in real life, I wouldn't necessarily do that. Then for question number two, 
about which type of tube is best for an esophageal cancer patient. So for those of you guys who don't know, I am an oncology dietitian, so I see this all the time. When we're thinking about this question for real life and for the exam, what you wanna be thinking is which tube is gonna be best. Remember, for these patients, we're often trying to kind of feed them, you know, long-term. There could be radiation going on. They could be surgery going on to the esophagus. Esophagus, there we go. So we would want to do a more permanent type of tube being placement. Now, the next question is, okay, we want to do permanent. Should I do into the stomach or should I do into the jejunum? And the answer is to the stomach, right? There's nothing wrong with going into the stomach as long as I still have the stomach there. Now, where you will see esophageal cancer patients have um, a tube into their small intestine is when they've had a fundification. So they are having their esophagus removed, they're having their stomach pulled up as their new esophagus. And in these patients, we will typically, when we do that surgery to remove their esophagus, we'll put in a small intestine, permanent small intestine tube. So as long as I have my stomach, I can feed into the stomach. If the stomach's been altered, then I can feed postpylorically. So really great question. Hope that clears it up for you guys. Next up, we have really fill in the math and nutrition support questions this week. So I said, for this question, just focus on calories. So I said, my patient is ordered for Kate Farms 1.5 at 120 milliliters per hour times 12 hours. There's no more Kate Farms 1.5, so he was given Kate Farms 1.4 at a rate of 120 um, milliliters per hour. Right? This is my actual patient. You guys know I love to bring in my cases from the hospital. So I asked two questions. So I said, number one, what is the calorie deficit created by this change? So let's do that first. So let's think about what my patient should be getting. So if I'm running Kate Farms 1.5, I said the rate was 120 on both cases. So if I do 120 times 12 hours, in both situations, I'm going to get 100 and one, sorry, 1,440 milliliters. Okay, well, if I do the 1.5 at this volume, I do 1,440 times 1.5, right? That's the concentration calories per milliliter. And I'm supposed to be getting 2,160 kcals. Okay, well, what if I ran it at the same rate, but it was 1.4 calories per milliliter? So I do the 1,440 times 1.4, and that only gives me 2,016. So if I do 2,160 minus 2,016, that gives me a calorie deficit of 144 calories. Perfect. So that looks like what most people got in the comments. So then question number two that I said is, what rate would Kate Farms 1.4 have to run at to give a a similar amount of calories? So what I want to do on this one is I want to start with my goal calories. So I know that I want to have a goal of 2,060 calories because that's what my original tube feed had given me. And this is a situation we see a lot in the hospital where they run out of a certain tube feed formula and we need to readjust. So if I'm trying to give 2,160 calories, I'm going to divide by the concentration of my formula, which is 1.4 
calories per milliliter. And remember, you want to keep your units tight so you can get it right. Notice that my calories are going to cancel to get milliliters. So let's do that. So 2,160 divided by 1.4. So that tells me my new volume is 1,543 milliliters. And I want to run it still on an overnight cycle. So I'm going to divide that by 12 hours. And so if I'm going to get 128, I'll round that to 130 milliliters. So in this case, what I'm saying is I'm creating a deficit if I just run it at the same rate of the lower calorie formula. But if I run my two feet at 130 milliliters per hour times 12 hours, then I will get the same amount of calories. So that one's a really great one. Again, if you didn't get that one, definitely take a pause, re-listen to this so you can do it on your own. So next up, I said, let's explain the expect um, expectancy theory. So expectancy theory is something you see in domain three. Most likely this will come up as an answer option versus having a true question about it. And so what this theory is saying is that to have something be valuable for your employees, that you re they really have to kind of believe that the reward is worth it. You know, if I say, hey, guys, if you write a review, you know, I'm going to shout you out on the live. You're like, thanks. Like, you know, if you don't value that, you know, you're not going to be like jumping to go do a review. You know, versus if I say, like, hey, if you write a review, I'm going to give you a free course. And you're like, oh, wow, like, that's great. Like, I really want that free course. You know, you're more likely to do it. And so we see a lot of this nowadays, too, with, like, I don't want a pizza party as a reward. I don't want, you know, a rock that says you rock. You know, I want money. I want time off. So, you know, your employees are only going to kind of do what you want them to do if they actually value that reward. Okay, so next up, we had another GIR question. So I said, your patient is 56 years old and is receiving D10 at 55 milliliters per hour. They're 67 kilos. What is the GIR? And so with this one, again, we're going back to our equation. I first need to think about how much dextrose. So this one, instead of a volume and a percent, we're given the rate. So we, if we're running it at 55 milliliters per hour, how much volume is that giving? And something to remember for the exam is that if they don't say how long something's running, assume it's 24 hours. So if I do 55 times 24, that's a volume of 1,320. And I'm saying, okay, D10, 10% of that, so times 0.1 is going to be dextrose. So that's 132 grams of dextrose. So if I set up my equation, I'm doing 132,000 divided by 67 divided by 1440. And that gives me a GIR of 1.37. If we round again is also fine, less than five. Perfect. And then we had a question from a student where she was saying that she sees several variations of the GIR formula. And she was saying, like, which is the most simple to use, which is why I posted a bunch of questions about it. 
Um, and so I'll tell you guys what I wrote in the comments. So I said, I like to teach the way we've been doing it so far in class of the milligrams of dextrose over the kilograms weight of the patient divided by 14, 40 minutes in a day. And I was saying that I really like this one because it allows you to find the answer, even if they give it in rate or percentage or grams of dextrose. So as always, there's typically multiple ways to solve something. If you use another equation and you're getting all of these right, go ahead and use that one. But if you've been struggling with the other equation and you think this one's easier, come on over and use this one. Okay, next question we have is I said, what is hyperemesis? And I said, what are some nutritional implications for mild or severe hyperemesis? So hyper, right, high, emesis, vomiting. So this is just severe nausea and vomiting that you often will see in pregnancy. And this is a really, really concerning because a lot of the times these women, they can't eat, they can't get enough calories, and then we're not going to be able to have them gain enough weight to support healthy growth of their baby. So always kind of the first line of defense is to kind of like those bland, high protein, high calorie, small, frequent meals. But something I think is really cool is that if these patients are not able to get enough down, we can actually do gastric feeding and do it kind of continuous. And it's almost like a little cracker of kind of, you know, you're giving the body just a little bit and that can really help the nausea. Um, but sometimes if it's so severe, you we actually do need to give these moms TPN, which is scary. Okay, next one. Why is a person with diabetes at risk of ketosis? So this makes us need to break down the mechanisms of diabetes, right? So I always like to think about it like the locking key, and oftentimes you might see it that way presented on the exam. So if we're thinking that insulin is the key and to this lock, which is the cell door in the cell membrane, in type 1, we have no keys. In type 2, we have keys, but they're not working in the locks. So when someone is not able to get any insulin production and there's no insulin around, you're not going to move any glucose into the cells. When we don't have any glucose in the cells, we're not going to have enough glucose to make um, to make our Krebs cycle run, right? Because we need our, our carbs to make oxaloacetate, right? Even if I'm going to be going to the Krebs cycle from protein or from fat, I still need just a little dash of carbs to do my oxaloacetate. And what a lot of people forget is that oxaloacetate it's not the last step, right? It's kind of the first and last step. I like to think about my oxaloacetate. like my little bus picking up my acetyl-CoA. So if I don't have oxaloacetate, right, I don't have any carbs, I'm not able to put in my acetyl-CoA into the Krebs cycle, and it's going to kind of back out into my fatty acid and then to ketones. So someone who has type 2 diabetes, we could still have a little bit of carbs in the system for my oxaloacetate, my body's still producing a little bit of um, a little bit of insulin, but for someone who has type 1 diabetes, there's not going to be any oxaloacetate helping that reaction to come on. So that's a great example of, you know, bringing in diabetes, bringing in glucose metabolism, and then also, right, to be thinking about um, our Krebs cycle as well. Okay, so Next up, 
we have a question from a student. She says, I want to understand this concept. So last week, 20 FTEs produce 1.75 nutrition consults per labor hour. How can productivity be increased? And so the answer was to decrease over time um, hours. And this question is kind of really going to kind of just trying to kind of be, you know, more efficient too and trying to get some more hours you know, done, well, not hours, you know, some more work done during this time to increase productivity, which would allow you to decrease the overtime hours. Versus if we're adding a PRN, you know, that's going to cost a little bit more money and it's not necessarily going to help, you know, things get done, even though it's an extra body, it's more focusing on, you know, trying to get the people we have here already doing some more work. Um, two. So then we had another question too and said which of the following menus is appropriate for a strict Muslim? We have A, steak, baked potatoes, salad, angel food cake, B, ham, mashed potatoes, green beans, pears, C, shrimp, scalloped potatoes, um, broccoli, pears, and D, ground steak patty. Um, we have red potatoes and corn fruited gelatin. Sounds like an interesting dish. Um, and so the answer on here was the first one. And the question was, you know, kind of why? Because, you know, there's definitely, you know, thinking about, you know, which one's Muslim, which one's kosher. And I know that always kind of gets a little bit confusing um, too. And so this one, how I would kind of approach it is like, which one, you know, kind of seems, you know, the safest too. Um, definitely not, you know, the gelatin or the ham, which really kind of puts us between, you know, the steak and the shrimp and scallops. And so sometimes you can see them kind of having, um, you know, kind of having overlapping, you know, considerations with kosher. You know, this exam, unfortunately, is not, you know, the most culturally competent exam, um, exam two because you know like we had uh diana commenting in the comments too she said you know as a practicing you know muslim myself i would answer c you know as strict muslims usually wouldn't eat meat that wasn't slaughtered that's halal but seafood does not need to be halal everything coming from the ocean is permissible so this very misleading question and i would definitely agree you know if you look at what's kind of on you know, in the Inman too, for kind of like cultural competency, like some of the culture that literally is just like hot. Like I know for like the Chinese, it's like likes hot and cold food. And you're like, is that really everything you need to know? Um, and so this is a great one where, you know, this is not necessarily what's in the book is not necessarily correct. Because um, like Danielle was saying, you know, it should be, you know, sea of, you know, some of that seafood, you know, over... Um, the meats. So again, these are always great questions to kind of bring to the group to be like, am I wrong? You know, because some of the study materials are wrong, which is um, quite annoying. Okay, right, next question. I took a picture from when I was at the airport. I was at the Starbucks and they had all the, all the Starbucks food out. And I said, which type of food service system is Starbucks? What are some of the pros and cons of this system? So this one always gets people a little bit. So this is going to be our kitchenless kitchen, our assembly serve, because we're, 
you know, we're not making the food on site. We're going to be grabbing it, boop, boop, putting it in the little oven thing, and pulling it out. So this is going to be assembly serve. Some pros are that, you know, minimal staff, minimal space, minimal skill. Cons, it's just, you know, it's more expensive just because you're buying, like, the fully prepared product. And also, right, you don't get to customize. You know, you can't be like, oh, I actually don't want the mozzarella on that sandwich. It's already done. So, you know, it's like, you know, you've been all been to Starbucks. It's not the most delicious, but, you know, it gets the job done. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.